0: Hello, welcome to Downstream here on Navarro Media. My name is Aaron Bastani. This week's guest, well, he's a big deal. His name's Ed Winters. You may have heard of him under the name Earthling Ed. That's certainly how he's known to his legion of social media followers. Ed is an activist and vegan educator, and his YouTube channel at the moment, I think has more than 400,000 subscribers. And while he's made plenty of appearances in legacy broadcast media, that's where he's built his profile. Now Ed is talking to us at Navarra Media to discuss his new book, This Is Vegan Propaganda. We've talked about his advocacy for animal rights and how, at just 27, he's become a one-person media machine when it comes to veganism. Ed, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm, I'm really well. Good. Uh, one of my colleagues actually said, when you went to the bathroom a moment ago, that your skin is
1: glowing. Oh.
0: So you're something of a personal... Uh, advert for the, for the merits of veganism.
1: Hopefully, hopefully. Um, yeah, that's very nice to hear. Yeah, I'm hopefully do have nice skin.
0: Is that, is that something you hear a lot? People say, oh, you seem quite happy or you're quite productive, you're quite successful.
1: Product, productive definitely seems to be a word that people use. Um, and I always feel a little bit bad when people say productive because it implies that you know, I'm doing all of the work, but I have a, a, you know, a, a team of people who help me in, in all the different things that I do. So I hope to be productive, but it's certainly not a, just me doing that on my own. Do you put that stuff down to veganism? Like the, the positive
0: stuff in your life? So, for instance, if you do seem productive or creative or very articulate in your videos, have you seen some sort of shift cognitively, physically, since you've started eating products which have no animals? Involved.
1: I've definitely seen changes in my personal life. Um, I feel healthier than I've ever been. Like I never used to. have People say anything about my skin before, um, but I think just more broadly that the passion it brings me has given me a unique drive which I never had before. I mean, I you know we were chatting a little bit off camera just before we started this, and I said I studied film at university and I loved film, but I I couldn't say that it was something I was so passionate about that I woke up every day you know excited to be able to pursue that. But I think. With veganism because it is something i'm so passionate about and care so deeply about it gives me a sense of fulfillment which i think drives me in a way that is something i never really had beforehand anyway so you
0: touched on your degree yeah tell us a little bit more about yourself your background where you're originally
1: from yeah i was born in york um lived there for 18 years It's, it's a nice city but it's a small city and i was desperate to come to london and uh, fortunately got into my first choice university, which was the University of Westminster to do film and TV. So came down to London when I was 18 and had this vision, a very arrogant vision, of course, of being you know, some sort of Steven Spielberg. You know, I was gonna get a camera and create this wonderful art house movie when I came to London. It, it never happened, of course, and quickly became, I guess, just a bit disillusioned by it. And towards the end of my degree, I became vegan. I think it was in my final year. And my partner and I, we both became vegan together. And after I finished uni, I kind of felt like so many people do, of course, a bit lost, You know, a bit like I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Did I really like what I'd studied? Is it really what I wanted to do as a career? And we were watching YouTubers at the time and some vegan YouTubers, just as the vegan YouTube scene was starting out. So what year is this? This was 2015. Right. And my partner was like, you know, you should, do a youtube thing we've got a camera we've got some experience filming you should you should try it and i was like there is no way that i'm gonna be some youtuber like i'm too anxious i'm too nervous and she kept saying no you should do it and and one day we set up a camera and i remember i was so sweaty and nervous and clammy and anxious and we we just we just kept doing it and doing it and eventually it started to snowball into something a little bit more of a career i suppose And, and i was able to branch out and do different things and become a little bit more productive as you as you were
0: saying And you've written this great book with uh, Penguin. This is Vegan Propaganda. We'll talk about that more in a moment. I mean, it's super well written. Thank you. Um, And I I understand. I mean, I've written a book. Editors play a huge role. Like you said, it's a collective effort like anything. Yeah. Would you have studied something else? I mean, it it seems to me that you've got quite a curious sort of intellectual mind that covers a whole range of topics. So if you hadn't studied film, what do you think you would have gravitated towards?
1: That is a really good question. I've always been interested in, in sociology. Um, And psychology, of course, you know, there's a lot of conversation around that in the book. Um, And so I like to think that I've gravitated towards those kind of areas of of study. Um, But to be honest, I I was just so keen to get to London and was just so keen to do film that I had not really considered the prospect of doing anything else. Um, But I like to think that if, if, you know, in the absence of a film course, it would have been something along those lines. And when did you become vegan again? 2015. 2015. And you become
0: the vegan YouTuber in 2015?
1: I started that early 2016. 2016, yeah. I mean, that's still really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was quick. I mean, for me, I I started absorbing a lot of vegan content. You know, it became something I became very passionate about. And then I realized that I wanted to do something about it, that I felt kind of guilty, you know, having this information and being aware of the scale of the problem, but then not discussing it or, you know, kind of spreading that information myself. It kind of made me feel still like I was a bit complicit. You know, when we recognize there's an injustice or there's wrongdoing, but then to stay silent about it is is a form of complicity. So I realized I needed to do something about it.
0: So you go from... Vegetarian or meat eater yeah, before 2015? Yeah, vegetarian.
1: Vegetarian. When did you stop eating meat? 2014. So May 2014, okay. I went vegetarian. January 2015, went vegan. January 2016, filmed my first YouTube video. You're
0: sort of evangelising in in a good way. I don't mean this is not, it's not, I'm not being condescending. You're <laughs> evangelising why it's important to stop eating anything related to animal production. Um, th- th- it sounds like there's some sort of trigger. I mean, that is almost like a, a sort of damascene. Conversion. I mean, the vegetarianism bit beforehand perhaps undermines that a bit, but it, yeah. it's really super quick. So, was there a moment, or was there a sequence of events where you think, "My God, I really need to argue for this"?
1: Well, there was two things that that pushed me to veganism. I mean, the first thing was to vegetarianism, and that was a chicken truck crash. Um, I was reading the BBC and I came across this story about a truck carrying about six and a half thousand chickens, and it crashed on the way to a slaughterhouse near Manchester. And the journalist was describing how some of the birds were running into oncoming traffic. You know, it was very, a lot of panic, a lot of frenzy, a lot of fear and how a lot of the birds were dead or maybe were suffering, you know, with broken bones. They were mutilated. And in my fridge was a KFC because I used to love fried chicken when I ate animals before. And I just felt very strange because I was feeling sorry for chickens, but in my mm-hmm. fridge was the leftovers of, of some chickens, mm-hmm. and there was this kind of contradiction in my values because I thought you know suffering is wrong for animals or you know infliction of suffering is wrong, but I 'm causing suffering to animals by the fact that I want to eat their body parts and so that drove me to being vegetarian and then eight months or so later, I saw a documentary called Earthlings," which um, it's all based in it, it, you know on farms and such in in the u s but it still really resonated with me because it talks about the idea of the mindset behind what we do you know the, the kind of like the the rationale that justifies our exploitation of animals mm. and it showed to me that you know the problem with what we do isn't just meat or even just you know dairy and eggs as well it, it's fundamentally like a mindset that views these animals as having such little worth that the things we do to them become morally permissible
0: mm. so. I, was, I was i was on the bbc website myself um, the other day yeah. And I saw this story about a monkey which killed a seagull. I don't know if you saw this. No, I didn't see it. It went to this. So the seagull was perched at the top of this sort of, um, I don't know, this sort of platform, yeah. and a monkey got hold of it. And there's video of it basically smashing the seagull to death. And right. sorry to say this to you, but. <laughs> no, and so. I thought, I thought, God, this, this is psychotic. Yeah. And I thought, God, primates are really screwed up. And then I'm like, well, we, we do this every day on like a hugely industrial scale. Yeah. And you know, I, I, we're, pro- we're probably worse. Earthlings. I mean I watched that I think what 10 years ago when yeah. it when it maybe first came out. Hugely powerful have you met Jacqueline Phoenix? Obviously, you know, he's a big celebrity vegan himself. Have you sort of reached out to him?
1: I, I, you know, I've reached out to him. Um, we've spoken uh, through, well, not directly, but I've spoken to his agent through email. Hopefully we'll be able to do something. But yeah, I once saw him. We were at an event together mm. and he was st- stood over there. And I remember looking at him thinking, I should say something. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. A bit starstruck perhaps, but hopefully one day. There could be a, a collaboration in the works. I wouldn't say no. You're huge on Instagram,
0: Facebook, YouTube. Yeah let's discard linkedin (laughs) but you don't tweet you're on twitter but you don't even like tweets what's that all about what's the particular misgivings or i don't know
1: twitter yeah
0: is it not right for your kind of activism do you find it a toxic place to, to have political debates
1: yeah a little bit of both i think um i did have a twitter when i first started so back in 2016 and I found it so draining, the, the, the arguments, the way people spoke to one another on Twitter, it just felt so detached from you know, a civilized you know, place of conversation. I'm sure it's little, maybe it's a little bit different now, but back then I just felt that it was really stifling. And, you know, and the thing about veganism is th- these are big ideas. And it's hard to convey big ideas with only a you know limited number of characters, and so I found it just a challenge. Um, so I, I stopped and and never went back to it. That is so
0: interesting. Yeah. 2016, you decided. So you've started making these videos, and almost immediately you're saying
1: actually Twitter isn't the place to make an impact. It happened. I mean, I'm sure for a lot of people, it it can make an impact. There's a couple of um, you know vegans on Twitter who seem to do pretty well with it, but maybe they have a different mindset than I do. But for me, I, I think. I mean, when you know, with my YouTube channel and, and such, I like long format conversation because, you know, like I say, these are big ideas and it takes time to really get to the roots of them. And I think just having slogans or kind of like small little phrases can kind of, you know, dilute the message and people won't necessarily come to grips with what the fundamental meaning is behind what I'm trying to say. So I like having long format conversations where there's, you know, a lot of freedom to express these ideas in, in a way that's a little bit more definitive.
0: See, this is interesting for me because you're on social media you've made a massive name for yourself, you're doing your activism on social media, and I, I say this as somebody who, who does the same, um, how do you respond to the sort of criticism which says, this isn't the real world, this isn't where people are, you're in something of a echo chamber, yeah. I mean, it's less so few, half a million YouTube subscribers, or more or less, you're making that criticism of Twitter by the sounds of it, to an extent, why doesn't it apply to these other platforms?
1: Well I think that there is the echo chamber argument and you know I've had a couple of moments where I thought to myself you know like who is this content for how am I going to get this out there um, and so it's been a, a process of trial and error. But the content that people have always resonated um, with of mine is the kind of debates I have with people, You know, the conversations where I go to you know college campuses or, or I go to um, rodeos or wherever it may be and, and have face-to-face conversations. That seems to break a little bit more out of that echo chamber. But I think the difference with Twitter is that it is a more limited platform, at least in my experience it was back in the day when I was using it. And I think that the the capacity for it to just kind of fall into arguments rather than constructive conversations. And there's, I suppose there's kind of a theater to Twitter, you know, where people are trying to one up each other and success on Twitter is kind of viewed on who makes the sassiest, you know, retorts rather than who makes the best argument. Whereas I think with, you know, things like YouTube, especially, and the content that I do, it's more about people getting to understand these arguments rather than trying to see who was, you know, the most sassy in that moment. And how do
0: you respond to the more general criticism that activism and, and social media don't necessarily mix I mean obviously you've got this huge reach on YouTube do, yeah. do you think that's not do you think that's not fair do you think you've had actually a massive impact with YouTube and Instagram
1: I mean I think they definitely can be and I think we see that with the more negative aspects of society you know the radicalization of people with more extremist ideologies I think we see how YouTube and, and Facebook in particular drives a lot of this more you know problematic belief systems that we've seen in the past couple of years especially so i think that there is definitely you know looking at case studies we can see that and it's not always a good thing but of course there's a lot of positivity that can come from it whether it's spreading you know good political ideas or indeed you know hopefully good uh, social ideas as well you're involved in a lot
0: this is almost like you know sort of diary of a ceo podcast rather than talking about the book we're going to talk about the book but i find you in particular also hugely interesting you're only 27 you've done all of this you've got your degree you've published a book how much do you sleep a night? <laughs> do you drink coffee? What's, yes. the, what's the secret to Earthling Ed's expanding media and business empire? We'll talk about that in a moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love coffee. So, you know, oat lattes are my, uh, my vice. So yeah, coffee, I mean, I sleep and I sleep pretty well. And I think for me, it's about balance and I've always struggled with, with balance. You know, I, I don't have like a, a shut off time. I don't work nine till five, I'll get up and work and then work until, you know, 10 at night, 11 at night. So I think it's just a, probably an unhealthy balance, which I'm kind of viewing as an investment right now. It's a, a you know, time investment and hopefully in, in the future that means that it'll pay off and I can have a little bit more, of, you know, time to myself to do other things as so well.
0: How many hours do you reckon you work a week at the moment?
1: Um, I mean, it's hard to say, but it's seven days. Yeah, pretty much dust till, well not dusk till dawn, but not dawn till dusk, sorry, but it, Probably 70, 75 hours maybe. But you're so
0: passionate, it feels like something you just would do regardless
1: well i mean it's not it's not something i wake up and dread you know you hear these stats of people and how many people are unconsciously working how many people dread going to work and you know i'm very fortunate that i can have variety in my work like i can come and speak to people like yourself or i can stay at home and write videos or i can go to the u.s and go to college campuses and have interesting conversations with very fascinating people so i'm lucky in the sense that there's this variety and you know flexibility to my work so whilst i may spend most of my time working the the types of work i do i find very fulfilling Filling and also not boring which definitely helps
0: and besides the social media platforms the book you're involved in animal sanctuary yeah and a fish and chip restaurant and another restaurants do you talk about that briefly
1: yeah so back in 2018 um myself and a few of us we set up something called unity diner which is like a plant-based diner in shoreditch and um the idea behind that was always that it was going to be a non-profit venture so the the funds that we raise through the restaurant uh, go towards kind of the activism work that Um, this group I run called Surge do. And so we've done some kind of advertising campaigns on the London Underground. But our big goal with it was to raise funds to help with the creation of an animal sanctuary where we would rescue animals from farms, slaughterhouses. Um, And we opened that in 2020, November 2020. And that's up in in the Midlands of England. And we've got around 150 rescued animals, you know, turkeys, hens, sheep. Lambs, uh, pigs, cows, just a you know, a variety of animals with wow. different stories behind them.
0: And you've got a university sort of representative
1: scheme? Yes, that's right. Yeah, the Surge Campus Rep scheme. So yeah, um, we, we have campus reps in, in the UK and, and we've just expanded to the US as well. Uh-huh. So uh, six times a year, these these campus reps will put on events in, in their universities where they hand out you know free vegan food, where they give leaflets out, they organize screenings and and basically just try and raise awareness about veganism within their, their campuses
0: politically where, where does this sit with the rest of your sort of commitments so obviously we know you're a vegan yeah. y- you talked about your views on this stuff basically coming from a sort of utilitarian point of view minimizing pain maximizing pleasure yeah if we apply that perspective to other other problems in society one might say that you would therefore be a a socialist or a liberal or an anarchist or a social democrat or a you know, ecological conservative. I'm not going to put those <laughs> yeah. names and labels on you, but yeah. where do you see yourself politically beyond the
1: issue of animal rights? I've always been left wing. Um, I've always, I've always voted that way, um, and I've always perceived my beliefs around social issues as being adhering to the to the left side of the spectrum. So that's kind of where I've always been. Um, labels wise, it's hard to say. I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily know where to put myself. I'm probably not as educated on those matters as I am other matters so left-wing definitely but I'm not sure about labels beyond that
0: but that's interesting because most people are saying oh plant-based you're saying I'm a vegan yeah but then when it comes to other things you're not so
1: sure is that just like Mm. you
0: said because you're not as confident about the things or probably
1: yeah I think it's definitely a a confidence thing um and just an education thing I mean I I like to see myself to be relatively politically inclined and, and like to keep up to date with with news beyond just animals of course and veganism and the environment um so a keen reader of the guardian put it that way is it unethical to have pets? It depends where they come from. If if we buy from breeders, yes. If we're rescuing dogs and cats and so, you know and other animals from, from shelters where the only other alternative is, is euthanization, then it's definitely a, a morally, you know, right thing to do. So I've got a dog. Yeah,
0: we bought him from a breeder. Yeah, that's unethical.
1: In, in the context of, of the situation we're in, I would say so. Feel free to you can. I'm not going to sort of get angry. I'm not like
0: yeah. uh, Aiman Holmes on uh, <laughs> this morning or something. Oh. So you, you think it's unethical to have pets unless they're rescued?
1: Not, yeah, not unethical to have pets, but the sourcing of where they come from is what decides whether that decision is moral or, or immoral. And, and the problem with buying from breeds is it's a, you know, a profiteering venture. Um, a lot of breeders you know breed animals who have terrible health conditions you know we breed animals to look a certain way to have specific traits because we find them cute whether that's a pug who can't breathe properly or a you know a dog with short legs who has spinal problems or, or a cat again with certain facial deformities which we believe to be cute and so the purpose of breeding is to create money so profiteering venture so um, and the problem is when we buy these animals from breeders where we're saying that the animals in shelters don't deserve that home so when we've got animals who have been euphemized unnecessarily yet we're still contributing to an industry Mm. that's breeding more of these animals into existence that seems to be a moral concern in my eyes
0: but we we've been around as a species let's say for two three hundred thousand years we know that we've had super strong interactions with dogs in particular canines for tens of thousands of years there is clearly something quite strong there's an impulse to to um, be proximate to this other species. We have yes. this historic relationship, yes. which precedes even agriculture, which is yes. just crazy. But you, you're saying that unless it's a rescue dog.
1: Well, in current, in the current context of, of how the situation is now, mm. let's say that in the future everyone rescued every dog mm. and now there's no animals in shelters and Precisely. everything's great. There would be a way of you know breeding animals which would be more moral than it is now if that focus was on creating you know happiness for those animals rather than creating uh, funds for the breeders mm. uh, if people who were buying those animals or, or adopting those animals if they were made you know it was made sure that they could give them a good quality of life mm. and there wasn't going to be a risk that they would be neglected and they weren't being bought for aesthetic purposes but as you say for these purposes of you know true companionship there's definitely um, a future that could exist where a breeding system would be more moral but in a current modern day context with the situation we have now i would i would beg to differ
0: do you think if most people saw the conditions under which animal agriculture occurred they would a embrace veganism b i suppose a more specific question how many do you think themselves as a percentage of say britain yeah how many as a percentage would do the dirty work themselves do you think
1: very very few Uh, very few would do the dirty work i mean we look at farms and slaughterhouses and the types of people who are employed in these facilities are low-income people often they're migrants who can't speak english have very few job opportunities often they're employed through agencies which you know exploit them heavily by you know taking percentage of their wages you know force them to work overtime so there is a system of exploitation that. You know, transcends just non-human animals and involves humans as well, because you know most of us wouldn't want to spend forty hours a week cutting someone else's throat. You know, uh, the throats of others. We want to hide that away from ourselves and go into Marks and Spencers or Waitrose or wherever it is and buy a neatly packaged piece of flesh and not think about where it's come from and certainly not think about the the human who had to to pull the blade themselves. So there is a disconnect, and I would love to think it's as simple as saying, "Hey, look, this is." A footage, some footage of a, of a gas chamber being used in, in, in Britain that's killing pigs, you know, will you go vegan? There is more, there is a, a more complex issue at hand, you know, people have a lot of cognitive dissonance, you know, there's a lot of psychological rationalisation that goes on. And so whilst in theory, people being confronted with that should be enough, you know, I think in reality, it's a lot more complex than than that.
0: You're making quite an original argument, though, by saying that animal agriculture, particularly particularly abattoirs, I mean, you're going to know much more about the supply chain than pr- probably anybody I'm going to meet. But it's not just exploitative for the animals, but also for the for the human beings involved, which is yeah. super interesting. Yeah. Ha- have you ever spoken to somebody who's working in an abattoir, who's who's been in these industries, who's then said to you, Ed, it's really screwed me up, it's given me something like PTSD? Because yeah. that, that, again, if somebody's quite sceptical of the things you're saying about animal rights, people generally think it's bad for human beings to have PTSD or... Yeah. Yeah. long-term mental
1: health issues in fact we're working on a video right now where we've interviewed uh, several ex slaughterhouse workers uh, one of them here in britain a guy in new zealand and, and a lady in america and yeah they they talk about the the mental health problems that it's given them the feelings of suicide um oh, wow. the gentleman that worked here in the uk he said that someone yeah killed themselves set themselves alight they torch themselves burn themselves um just because of the psychological damage it gave them they they've you know the the screams the haunt their dreams and wow. it is it is a, it's a troubling thing i mean if we think about the action itself you know for most of us the thought of killing one animal is disturbing you know mm-hmm. if we had to do it's just just one that that the damage of that the trauma of that mm-hmm. but then what we have are these people who are often victims of their environment like i was saying they don't have much choice they don't have the luxury to to get another job necessarily um you know they don't have the luxury to to complain because they're on you know a a temporary visa, or they're migrants who Mm. potentially don't have um, the paperwork that they need to feel comfortable and safe making complaints, let's put it that way. And so we have these people who are victims of circumstance, victims of their environment, with little choice, and every single day they have to do this thing to multiple animals, hundreds, thousands of animals, every single week repetitively. And then we expect them to hang up their bloody aprons at the end of the day and reintegrate into society. And it's just not realistic. You know, there, there have been studies that have shown that, as well as you know, personal problems such as PTSD and depression, the, I guess the, um, the burden of what they do also causes these people to act violently within society. They repress these feelings, and it comes out in the form of anger. So, in in the US, they've done a couple of studies. And they looked at what they called boomtown counties. So areas around large slaughterhouses, mm. and they saw significantly increased rates of sexual violence, rape, and also domestic abuse. So people were going home and um, were carrying all this anger and resentment from their job and then harming their family members or people within their immediate circles, because it is this kind of catalyst for more violence. Um, and you know, it's, it's a significant problem. And um, it's something that we don't often think about, but it definitely exists.
0: Do you ever talk to sort of trade unions, organised workers, and say, "Look, I mean, obviously you don't want these jobs to exist in the first place." Yeah. But you say to them, "Look, these these people have particular needs in this industry. They need, obviously, better pay and conditions. But yeah. they also need there needs to be far greater attentiveness to their mental health. And also, as a result of that, I mean, some of the stuff you describe in here about the treatment of animals is just psychotic. I mean, yeah. some people aren't innocent themselves, and yeah. they perpetuate awful things. Yeah. But this isn't a. This isn't a. I was. I would say a quote unquote safe environment for anybody to be working in.
1: It's not safe. No, definitely. I mean, even just from physical harm. You know, the number of amputations that people have from trapping. You know, parts of their bodies in machinery, or you know, amputating fingers. You know. Even when you look at just physical harm, the rates of of, of that are significantly higher than in the average job, even in the average kind of laborers job, if you like. So there is definitely a significant problem there. I've never spoken to unions, but what we have is a system, kind of a revolving door system Mm. where these slaughterhouse chains uh, and these companies aren't necessarily going to be bothered if if people leave. Or they're not gonna be worried if people, you know, quit, which happens all the time. There's you know high turnover rates. Because unfortunately we live in a society where there's always people desperate for, for jobs. And uh, you know, interestingly we saw it with Brexit, you know, just in the run up to Christmas where um, pig Producers and slaughterhouses were complaining that there weren't enough workers, and that was because we obviously, with Brexit, we kind of ended this this visa scheme and immigration had significantly reduced, and a lot of migrants who were here. were like, well, I'm going to go back into into the EU, so we saw that the first-hand um, reality of just how dependent these industries are on migrant workers. So I've never spoken to unions, but I guess in theory, the problem is. We as consumers have become used to paying very little for something that has a, a huge cost, you know, a moral mm-hmm. cost, an environmental cost, mm-hmm. um, and as well as a financial cost. You know, we subsidize these industries to the tunes you know, billions every single year, and then we pay very little. So someone has to suffer, obviously the animals, but obviously as well some of these humans in this system, because at the end of the day, that's where those savings are being made. And um, unless we are willing to pay more, that problem will still exist. Not that I think that would make it moral, of course, but mm-hmm. while we become used to, to cheap meat products, that's just a, a reality. So I only
0: read meat once every several months. You know, we had it at our wedding. Um, if you're feeding lots of people, perhaps. I generally meet meat once a week because my wife wants to eat chicken on a Sunday. Right. We don't have any dairy products and I eat eggs. Yeah. And the chicken is free range. Sure. Now, I'm under no illusions. That still has a, a huge amount of suffering involved. Yeah. But I think to most people, they would say that's quite good. That's, yeah. you know, you've got humane, quote-unquote, meat, and you're, you're reducing meat. So what would you say to that person? Because there's a lot of people out there that, that have that have that sort of profile
1: as their diet. I mean, I think it's uh, firstly great that we're in a position where people are choosing to to abstain from eating certain products. And I think that there is now this... Uh, awareness that there is a reason why people would perceive these things to be bad. I I remember even when I first started advocating for this, you know, back in 2016, there's some, you know, a lot has changed in the past six years. And I think what I was, trying to communicate to people back then would often fall on deaf ears. But now people quite proudly say, oh, I I know I eat less meat than I used to, or, you know, I don't eat red meat or I don't eat dairy. And people seem proud of that, like it's something that they they view as being positive, which I think is great, because obviously it is. I always say to people, look, I think it's amazing that you've made those changes, but it's important, I suppose, to ask yourself, you know, why you made those changes. You know, even if you made those changes for environmental reasons, you know, it's this, it's still an environmental reason to stop eating chicken and eggs so whatever reason it might be and especially moral reasons you've got to say well is this the fullest extension of that reasoning you now if the reason i've stopped eating red meat is because i think cows are sentient and farming cows is bad for the environment then why haven't you stopped eating you know chicken and eggs because you know, they're more detrimental to the environment than consuming plants and, of course, come from animals who suffer. So it's just about, I think, extending the reasoning you've already, you know, applied to its fullest extension.
0: But what if you only uh, say, I'm not going to eat
1: mammals? Yeah. Well, what would be the reasoning for not eating mammals? They're like us. In what way?
0: They, you know, they, um, they, have, uh, <laughs> they have nipples. They, <laughs> yeah. have, they give birth to live children. Why is um, that morally relevant, though? Well, I, I suppose we could say, so for instance, I think it's fair to say, you know, you talk like a philosophy undergraduate. It's quite interesting like how analytical, and that comes through in the book and all of your videos. Yeah. I suppose for me, I, I I know that eating a chicken, for instance, mm-hmm. is deeply immoral, has hugely profound climate consequences. If my yeah. wife was watching this, you know, you should be paying attention to Ed. <laughs> if it was up to me, we would be vegetarian. Yeah. Um, but i also think look we look at primates and we say they're more like us so for instance, animal testing mm. i think there's a greater ethical argument for testing on a mouse which is a mammal than a chimpanzee because i think even though we have very limited understanding of the of the world around us broadly speaking we we can sympathize with the suffering that a chimpanzee is going through sure yeah we, we you know and not so that obviously mice feel pain and so on and so forth yeah. so with a mammal i guess the argument could be well we know, for instance, the relationship that a cow or a pig has with their young, that, yep. that maternal instinct, which is hugely powerful in mammals. Yeah. Is that a, I mean it's a coherent argument, or you think it's a, you think it 's an errant one?
1: I'm a, I think that it makes complete sense that we would have more empathy and concern for animals who are more similar to us, which is why people you know, are most reluctant, I think, to stop eating fish when it comes to, to you know animals because they 're so different to us there 's very little that we can recognize within ourselves and them, of course, so then it becomes I suppose less of a, an empathy or an emotional thing or more of a, a logical thing that we have to say. We have to look at fish and go, Look, I I recognize they're not they're not particularly similar to me, but they still possess characteristics and, and traits that make them morally relevant. You know, sentience, the capacity to experience, to suffer. So things like that, we have to then use a little bit more of a logical process to come to the conclusion of why we should stop consuming them. Whilst, of course, with cows and pigs, you know, we can understand their suffering. They vocalize in a way that we recognize that their eyes show fear in mm-hmm. a very profound and, you know, similar way to ours. And so it is instantly easier to see the things within them that make what we do to them obviously wrong so there is a good argument there but ultimately we have to look beyond just that because what's important isn't how similar an animal is to us but instead what they possess as an individual you know and that's what makes these animals worthy of of, the, of consideration
0: i guess for me the sort of low-hanging fruit is other mammals yeah because i feel like particularly and with dairy right you could be a vegetarian and still eat dairy and what we do to female cows is just disgusting yeah it's actually probably the most disgusting behavior you see in meat production, I think, is yeah. is a life of subjugation and taking their children away from them and killing the, the, the male children. Um, bivalves, if we're going to bivalves. take this logic all the way down, so yeah. for people watching, you know, um, oysters or mussels or clams, yeah. we don't think they have central nervous systems. No. And we think that they can draw CO2 out of the atmosphere. So... Should we be farming clams and stop eating fish?
1: Well, i definitely stop eating fish. And I think morally speaking, it's definitely preferable to consume clams and oysters and mussels. And it's, it's definitely a grey area. Um, and I think the way that I see it is that we, we don't think they have a central nervous system, but we think they have something called a ganglia, which is kind of like a, a rudimentary collection of nerves. And so with the choice between eating clams, oysters and mussels or eating plants, we still believe that there will be a difference between those those the you know, two choices and if we had to take a guess on which of those would be more likely to have the experience to suffer we would say probably mussels clams and oysters so if i have the choice i i don't personally consume them just in case because it's more likely than with mm. plants but it, it is a gray area and something that's less uh, obvious than of course you know other fish and other marine animals um and indeed mammals and birds which we know quite definitively do have the mm. capacity to experience in your book, you sort
0: of take a knock at the RSPCA. Yes. Now, for most people, the RSPCA, are the good guys, yes. they rescue cats and dogs. Why are the RSPCA not the unadulteratedly
1: positive organisation that most people sort of conceive of? Well, I mean, I think when we we say the RSPCA, I always think, what what, what exactly have they have they done? You know, they talk a good game. Um, they have RSPCA officers as opposed to, you know, uphold animal cruelty laws. But really, what, what have they ever done? You know, they um, haven't campaigned to end the worst, you know, of, of violence to animals. We with Kurt Zuma recently. What, what did the RSPCA do then? They, they didn't do anything. They took his cats away. But what did they do? Was there no press statement or anything? I mean, they condemned it, but they have officers that are supposed to uphold animal cruelty laws. So why weren't they trying to get him arrested and and criminally charged for something? I mean, they're supposed to be protecting animals. And yet, in that case, all they did was was take his two cats away and and leave it there. That doesn't seem like adequate punishment. But fundamentally, the RSPCA are are a paradoxical organisation. It's called the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And yet they have schemes, which the... um, in the the schemes they give to farmers, which are inherently paid for schemes, so farmers will pay memberships to you know membership fees to the RSPCA to then use this label on on their products, which means that the RSPCA is profiting off of animal cruelty because C- no one for a second thinks you know right, hopefully you know when they when they reflect on it for a moment doesn't think that the unnecessary killing of an animal isn't cruel. I mean whether or not you think it's justified is beside the point. Yeah. To the individual animal, it, it's obviously cruel. Yeah. So the idea that these, this organization is supposed to be preventing cruelty to animals, yet takes money from people who cause more cruelty to animals than, than any other in the world. Farmers cause more cruelty than any other people in the world because their industry is reliant on causing cruelty to animals. And the RSPCA takes money off them and then doesn't try to stop what they do. And, and not only don't they try to stop it, but they tell us that it's okay. You know, I talk about in the book, there's something called thumping, which is where they, they pick up farmers will pick up baby piglets who aren't growing fast enough or who maybe have um, um, deformities or who are, are ill and they bang their heads against the floor as a form of euthanasia or hit them against the wall. The RSPCA is fine with that. The RSPCA, and I write about this in the book again, they were giving out their certification to salmon farms in Scotland, even though these salmon farms were shooting seals because the seals were causing problems to the salmon farmers because they try and eat the salmon. So the RSPCA, who was supposed to be preventing cruelty to animals, were handing out certifications to salmon farmers who were shooting seals to protect their profits. That doesn't seem like the, the thing that this organization should be doing. You know, I always think of it being like the NSP, PCC you know the prevention of cruelty to children if they were working with and endorse endorsing people who were being cruel to children we we would think that there's something terribly sick was going on because they're supposed to stop that and yet the RSPCA works hand in hand with people who cause more suffering and cruelty to animals than than any other in the world
0: so beyond just failing to do what is meant to be their central mission they're actually giving license to the worst perpetrators what yeah what's the response then I mean how, how do you you're saying it's not a credible organisation, presumably with yeah. regards to animal cruelty. So
1: what, what do people do about that? Well, I think the first thing is to stop supporting the RSPCA, don't, don't financially con- you know, um, contribute to what they do. But secondly, also, I think it's about scrutiny. One of the biggest problems with the RSPCA is, is like you were saying with with your question before is it kind of gives people the illusion that everything's fine. You know, if there's this charity who are supposed to be preventing cruelty to animals, who as a nation we respect and adore, and they say, look, this is fine. Well, the average person is going to say, well, this is the charity that's protecting animals. If they say it's fine, it must be. And, and what we see are situations where RSPCA-assured farms are exposed for doing cruel things to animals, and, and not just things that break the RSPCA-assurance scheme regulations, but indeed break th- the law. And what we've seen time and time again is the RSPCA will go in, they will say, we've reviewed the farm, and now it's fine. Now, I don't understand how that system of punishment Works, You know, if someone does something wrong, they, they should be punished. But when it happens in animal farms, what happens is we go, oh, that's wrong. And then we have someone who goes in from the RSPCA, they look around and say, now it's fine. And, and no one gets punished. There's never any accountability. The farms are never closed down. The farmers are never held to account. And the RSPCA takes the membership fee from them again and again and again, whilst telling us that everything's fine. There's something wrong there.
0: Have you ever spoken to a political party about this stuff? Saying, look, this, this should be in your manifesto I mean, the Labour Party are less open to sort of campaigns and social movements than they were previously. But that can change. I mean, or or maybe even the Conservatives. I mean, they have a big proclaimed, you know, adoration for conservation issues and so on. It's something that you can imagine their members getting upset about. Is there some sort of interface you have with political parties? or Are you still at the sort of... Taking on the RSPCA, I think it's quite a sexy issue. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think it's very attention-grabbing. And and, and you describe, I mean, they're completely failing in what they, they claim to uphold. Yeah. And I think also, I think people, when people find out about charities and hypocrisy really gets people going, I find. Yeah. So have you had any sort of interesting feedback on this? Are people really surprised? Are they saying, oh my God, what can we do about it?
1: When news outlets talk about the RSPCA, I always find that the Daily Mail commenters are the ones who are most outraged by what's happening with the RSPCA. And I think because there is that kind of... um, that virtue signaling thing that, you know, Daily Mail commentators tend to, to hate, the idea that there's this charity that are supposed to be doing this good thing and say that they care about this, mm. but they're actually not, that that hypocrisy there. So I, I've been to a couple of um, kind of like parliamentary committees on on animal welfare and such, but I've never had like um, a face-to-face conversation with someone who could bring about meaningful change. I, mean, I know the Green Party are probably the ones who, who would be most supportive, but I think the problem we have politically speaking is that it's not a very... Um, it's not a very appealing subject. I mean, things like fur and foie gras and fox hunting are mm-hmm. huge things mm-hmm. that have, you know, fox hunting of course was a, a huge problem for Theresa May when she when she backed it, um, and then likewise with Boris, the this the notion he was going to ban the importation of fur and foie gras became a big selling point for him in in the last election. So those issues do definitely draw voters in, but I think by and large, when you start talking about meat, dairy, and eggs, it's going to alienate voters a lot. And I think political parties will be very scared and fearful of of talking about something that people across all you know the whole political spectrum partake in and and enjoy. I think it's probably a bridge too far for the time being. But um, I'm hoping that by kind of rallying enough support from an individual consumer point of view, eventually it'll become a, a an issue that's that's worthy of you know being included in manifestos
0: what's the most so we talked about what the most arguably virtuous animal product is which is maybe bivalves i know you're not encouraging people to eat it but it's like, it, it's arguably the least suffering involved sure.
1: what's the worst fish um the scale of it causes so much suffering um and the abject treatment of fish, I think, is very unique. There is nothing that protects fish. There no laws, regulations that really do anything to help fish. And I, I say that kind of loosely because the laws and regulations we have now don't protect land animals either. You know, mm-hmm. th- there's never any really upholding of those regulations. But with fish, we view them with such little regard that we drag them out of the water and we leave them to suffocate or we gut them while they're still alive, pull out part of the... You know, the internal organs while they're still conscious and and living and, and we just discard them. I think that the cruelty in, in fish farming and, and, and wild fish capture is probably the most severe. And I always say f- from a suffering perspective, chicken and fish are the, are the worst because of the scale of it. Um, you know, when you look at beef farming, the scale of it is a lot lower. So environmentally it may mm. be the worst, but from an ethical perspective, it's, it's you know, quote unquote better, not, not objectively good, but better but chicken and fish are definitely the ones that cause most suffering.
0: What's so bad about chicken farming?
1: Chicken farming, yeah. So the first thing is that we've selectively bred chickens. So throughout the 20th century, there was a huge drive to make chicken farming more profitable. Back in the early 20th century, we farmed chickens for their eggs, but actually the meat side of it wasn't very profitable because you didn't get much meat from a from a chicken. So we started to selectively breed them. So basically we started to breed them so they had certain traits. And what we have now is a situation where chickens will reach slaughter weight in about six weeks. So what we have are basically chicks, babies, but they're in these obese adult bodies, which causes them to have organ failure, you know, where their organs give out because they're growing too fast. Um, We see situations... At what point do they hit reproductive age? Um, Well, I'm not sure when they start laying eggs from a reproductive perspective. But they're basically getting adult bodies before they're even fertile, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's about 16 weeks, I think, until a hen starts producing eggs. Um, But broiler chickens, which are the meat chickens, um, yeah, they, they don't get anywhere near fertile age. So what we have is a situation where we have these animals who have grown exceptionally fast and then we farm them incredibly intensively. Um, so you get these big barns and in those barns, maybe 30, 40,000 chickens and they are kept inside their entire lives and they just grow so big so quickly that their organs fail where they can't reach food and water points because they're paralyzed. You know, chicken farming is, is a system of only suffering. You know, it's not like other systems of farming where, you know, sometimes animals will be able to graze and won't be suffering 24 seven, but with chicken farming, it is, it is only suffering. And then at the end of it, they're, they're herded into these crates, loaded into trucks, taken to slaughterhouses where commonly now in the UK, they're, they're gassed to death. Um, the suffering in chicken farming is is definitely very pervasive. And the problem is these animals are live six weeks. So we have a constant rotation of new lives being bred into existence, new animals suffering that same process over and over again. Um, You know, they're defecated on the floors of these barns, which creates ammonia in the air. And the ammonia will cause blindness. It will cause their feathers to be burned off and scorched off their bodies. so yeah, not not good.
0: So when you get the black stain on a piece of chicken meat, yeah, apparently that refer is that from their own urea? Is that right? That's or? right, the
1: ammonia that comes from from the you know the urea, exactly the urine in the feces. Yeah, they call those hock burns, and that's because the animals are forced to stand in in the feces and, and urine for their entire existence. Yeah, it causes burns on their bodies.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, I just, as a kid, I remember seeing that go. Like, oh, what's that? And yeah, it's just so so um, fundamental to, to chicken farming. The climate arguments, I think, have been well rehearsed. Um, with regards to, to, to why we need to move away from animal agriculture. What I think has changed in the last two years is is the pandemic argument, the sort of epidemiology yeah. argument. Yeah. Can you sort of rehearse that a little bit? Because I think people are less familiar with that. But obviously with COVID now, it's top of the agenda.
1: Yeah. The, the greatest threat from a pandemic's perspective, according to pandemic experts, is something called H7N9, which is a strain of bird flu, now, when we talk about bird flu, we sometimes think about animals in the wild, but actually wild animals don't pose a significant threat to us from a bird flu perspective. The problem is what, bird flu becomes severe for humans when it mutates in intensive factory farms. And so what we have is things like H5N1, H7N9, which are these very virulent and very deadly strains of, or could be very deadly strains of bird flu. and. The, the issue with factory farming is it packs animals in so intensely that you have this kind of Petri dish that a virus can spread. Um, from animal to animal, uh, uh, mutated at a rapid rate, and then what you have is, of course, human contact, which can then bring these viruses into a human-centric society as well. So, when we talk about viruses and, and flus and, and the risk of, of pandemics, the risk, the major risk, is coming from from factory farms, especially. You know, the problem is we often look at wet markets in Asia and we say, you know, these wet markets where wild animals and exotic animals have been traded, you know, that's where the the biggest pandemic threat comes from. But ultimately studies have shown that when you look at the conversion of, of what they call LPAI, which is low pathogenic avian influenza to what they call HPAI, which is highly pathogenic mm-hmm. avian influenza, the conversion from, from low to high is most prevalent in Western countries. Um, and so actually when we look at the threat of, of bird flu, which potentially has the capacity to to end civilization as we know it, and that, that sounds so um, over the top, and it sounds like i am being hyperbolic, mm. But if we look at COVID-19 as an example, you know, the fatality rate of that is not 0.5% or, you know, there or thereabouts, let's say. We, you know, we see strains of bird flu that have fatality rates 10%, 20%. You know, H5N1, which was a, a very deadly bird flu virus that came about in the late 90s, had uh, at that time a fatality rate of 60%. So 60% of all humans who were infected died. Um, and if that became a, a virus that had pandemic potential, it could easily have 20 to 25% fatality rate. Mm. So you think about the damage caused from COVID-19 with half a percent. Now let's make that 20%, 25%. That ends civilization as we know it. The end of electricity, of, of, of water, because you've got no utilities. We've got no hospital staff because they're dying or they're sick or they're too scared to come in. Everything... Uh, that we have come to understand as being normal would change in the blink of an eye if one of these viruses mutated in the way that it could. And the problem is we're playing with fire. You know, the issue of pandemics is, is not an if. It's not if there will be a pandemic. It's when there will be a pandemic. And we just have to hope that the next pandemic won't be as severe as the ones I'm referencing now. But we don't know that, and it could be. And the idea that we are creating systems like chicken farms and pig farms that maximize the potential for these viruses to emerge and then spread Mm. just, I think, speaks to human ignorance and, and arrogance. The fact that we don't think for a second, or at least not seriously, that there is a chance that chicken farming and pig farming could come to destroy civilization as we know it. But, yeah. but it absolutely could.
0: Yeah, there's Ebola, which has a fatality rate of something like fifty percent. Yeah. So if you get the transmissibility of COVID nineteen with the 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 deadliness of Ebola, then yeah. it's it's a, it's a, like say game over. Yeah. I feel like people don't recognise the fact that the Earth's been around for four or five billion years. We as a species species have been around for about three hundred thousand years. Agriculture is twelve thousand years old. Yeah. We don't really know how it ends. We've got a very small sample of yeah. of, of how this really works. And factory farming is just a couple of hundred years old. And I think, just to impress this point, I did a podcast recently with some guys who wrote a book called Half Earth Socialism. They make the same point you do in this book, but they sort of basically list all of the pathogens that we know of, measles, smallpox, yeah. you know. And it's all because of agriculture. It's yeah. all in the last 12,000 years. Cholera is in the 1790s. Yeah. And I don't feel like people know that, but I feel like it's for you guys, for, for, for vegan advocates... It feels like it's a new sort of tool or a weapon in your armory. Is it? Is it something which you're finding a bit more of a response to? Because even a conservative or Republican politician has to take food security, quote unquote, more seriously now, which means a lot less of this kind of farming,
1: surely? I mean, yes and no. I think there's a fatigue around the conversation of pandemics which has, has worn people out. And I think um, at the beginning, some of my most popular content was was around that and um, you know, talking about the things that we just discussed, but now I think it's less so because people are a little bit more tired. And then obviously the theories about the lab and, and Fauci and stuff have kind of taken away from the animal argument because people perceive it as being something um, a little bit more man-made than, than naturally caused, of course. So I think that there is those two compounding aspects to it, but by and large, it's a conversation that didn't exist a few years ago. You know, there, obviously there were some vegans talking about it and there were, of course, a lot of virologists and, and infectious disease experts that were talking about it, but I think it's a mainstream conversation now. I remember right at the beginning of the pandemic, I put a post up. It was talking about how Ebola had come from animals, how the HIV virus had come from consuming animals. It was talking about you know, these different viruses that had come from animals. And I remember that The Mirror actually ran an article on me saying that I was outraging people by, by, by spreading this misinformation. And then what happened well, they is they called it misinformation yeah why what was misinformative about it i'm not really sure and so i think at the beginning of the pandemic there was this kind of refusal to accept just how all-encompassing or you know how, how much animal agriculture has created yeah. these viruses but then it started to change a little bit the guardian did an article talking about it vox did an article the new york times did an article talking about these links and so the conversation started to shift And I think a couple of years ago, talking about, you know, how Ebola comes from this and Dnieper in Malaysia came from pig farming and all these things was quite controversial. But now I think, hopefully, it's just become accepted as being true, which it is. I love the
0: idea that there's some journalists at the Daily Mirror and you're talking about zoonotic spillover and they say it's fake news. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Should we just ban meat altogether? Because this is an interesting argument for me. Yeah. And I say this to somebody who eats meat, not much, but I still eat it. Um, If you look at how central fossil fuels are to the global economy, nothing works without it. All sorts of products from, you know, the mics we're using, the distribution channels for things, cellophane, so much. Pleather, right? You know, using uh, polyurethane and things like that. So petrochemicals, hydrocarbons, hugely important for the global economy. Huge amount of global GDP. Arguably animal agriculture is far more destructive in terms of climate change. Yeah, in terms aspects, of water yeah. and yeah. yeah and yet it's like two three percent of global gdp yeah we're saying we have to end hydrocarbons end fossil fuels keep it in the ground but actually it'd be far less for hit to our economic model if we stopped eating meat yeah
1: so so why is nobody saying that at the sort of macro level i, I it's, it's it's a question that bugs me all the time and I think partly because it's a relatively new conversation. I mean, when Al Gore released The Inconvenient Truth, that was a, a big thing for a lot of people. It, it introduced people to this this concept of climate change. But even then, it took, what, 20 years before a president in the US said, oh, we should be, have net zero, you know. It took a long time for that to kind of like become political um, a political norm, and I think that this conversation around animal agriculture and the environment started after that, rather than after you know just fossil fuel consumption in the environment. So we're still playing catch up, and I think also people are less attached to fossil fuels. You know, it's not it's, it's not mm. our identity. You know, we, you know, if someone's you know for most people, if we said, look, you can click your fingers and have renewable energy and everything's great, would you take that? Everyone's going to say yes. But if I said, look, click your fingers and you can eat plant-based food for the rest of your life and everything will be great, would you do it? more people say no because there's identity around food it symbolizes something it's it's family get-togethers it's anniversary meals it's sunday night dinner you know it's all of these things and it, it's bigger than just mere consumption it forms our cultures our traditions we have meals that you know around turkey at christmas easter it is lamb so there's so much around food that makes it bigger than just sustenance and nutrition mm. so i think we have to break through those barriers which makes it trickier and also animal farmers own a lot of land so gdp wise very small Um, in terms of like workforce employment very small but in terms of political power very large disproportionately a lot of politicians you know work very closely with farming unions a lot of them are farmers themselves george eustace is a good example Mm -hmm. so there is a a little bit more of a i guess a, a symbiosis between the farming community and politicians Of course, there is with oil companies, there's a a revolving door that exists there. But I think it's a little bit more embedded when it comes to agriculture and, and politicians. And I think all that compounds into this not being as much of a conversation as it should be.
0: The thing about the cultural importance, I just want to stick with that for a moment. So in the UK, we eat meat, but we don't actually eat that much meat by sort of European standards, by global standards. I mean, to say to a Turk or to an Iranian, you have to stop eating lamb. Yeah. I mean, that's like saying to an English person, you have to stop drinking beer. Yeah. You know, right. it's quite a fundamental part of that national culture. Yeah. So how does that, I mean, how, how do you think that's going to work? Do you, do you sort of, first of all, is this a sort of, is this Western sort of ethical imperialism? I mean, you're going to say it's not, but I'd like to know the answer why. And then secondly, how do you think these kinds of cultures can detach themselves from
1: animal agriculture? Because that's, that's going to take a really long time. There's a, a couple of really good questions. In relation to your first question, I think it comes down to that issue of of force. You know, vegans don't force anyone to to be vegan. You know, it's impossible. I couldn't couldn't make you stop eating chicken on a Sunday, you know. That's something you have to make the decision on your own to do. So I think what vegans do is they can create stimulating conversation, hopefully, you know, create thoughts and dialogue around you know issues we don't often think about but we can never make someone be vegan because what you choose to eat you you choose to eat. So I don't think there is that that worry of imperialism. Um and also I think when you look culturally around the world cultures historically who have been the closest aligned with the, you know, with veganism would be kind of Jainist cultures and Buddhist cultures, and of course some some Hindus as well. Though of course they consume dairy, so I think when you look globally and you look at different cultures, those ones would be most aligned with veganism. Yet of course, um, and not Western. Um, of course not. So I think that that's probably what I would say. Secondly, in relation to the question of how we change culture and how we influence people in that regard. I think this is one of the hardest aspects. And I think what, what makes it particularly hard with maybe like the Iranian example is it's also tied in with religion. Mm. You know, the, the problem with religion as well, when it's combined with culture and, and kind of personal beliefs in that sense, is it creates this really, really strong worldview. Mm. Because now I don't just have to convince someone that eating lambs is wrong. I have to convince them that eating lambs is wrong for them personally and that, um, you know, their deity you know thinks that it's wrong well not that the deity thinks that it's wrong or that their deity is wrong to say that it's okay because mm-hmm. they turn around and say well if alice says that it's okay for me to to cut the throat of the the lamb for eid then who are you to tell me that it's not and that's really hard because who am i to, to speak out against what Allah has told them is moral and just and fine so there is an added layer of complication and i just think that the thing with culture is we have to show people that they're not going to lose anything everything that we that we use animals for in culture, it's not the animal use. It, it represents something bigger. You know, we consume turkey at Christmas, but the point of Christmas isn't to eat turkey. The point of Christmas is to be with family and friends and share, and if you're Christian, to, you know, to to rejoice in in, in the birth of Jesus and all of these different things. So it's not ab- about that. Even with Eid, you know, the slaughtering of the animals it's not a necessity to celebrate the purpose of Eid, you know, the the the, the sacrifice, you know, the idea of giving back, the idea of rejoicing, of, of praising Allah, you know, we use these animals as tools through which we can celebrate these cultural traditions and such, but they're not a necessity for us to do so. So I think it's important to try and show people that we can still celebrate everything that's important about culture and tradition, but without having to harm someone else, because, you know, we don't use um, cultures and traditions to justify harming humans. Um, You know, FGM is an example of a a cultural practice or a traditional practice It's it's certainly not justified and it's Mm -hmm. certainly not justified because it's cultural or traditional. So I think we have to look beyond culture and tradition and look towards the reduction of suffering because everything that's important about culture can be celebrated without causing harm. You know, language, song, dance, even food, we can just use plant-based ingredients Mm. instead. But that's easy easy in principle to convey that, but to get someone to, to believe that is, of course, the, the the hard bit. Yeah, I just think, particularly,
0: I mean, I'm familiar with West Asia, but because obviously you have these are nomadic cultures for for a long, long time. So particularly the role of lamb, yeah, um, is is such a powerful one. But I mean, I, mean, I personally agree. I, I can't eat lamb. It's delicious, but I can't eat lamb anymore. Speaking about what you said there about um, in South Asia, there are some cultures which historically are are, are more comfortable with vegetarianism, veganism. Yeah. Where do you sit on the arguments that it's healthier? So we started this conversation. I said, you look healthy, glowing skin. Uh, This was remarked upon by one of the the people recording this. We don't have any real evidence of multi-generational cultures eating just vegan diets. So, I mean... How do you sort of respond to that we have one you know one individual does well one might not do so well yeah. we know for instance i mean there are peer-reviewed studies about um certain ethnic groups responding better to different kinds of diets because of enzymes which have been adapted over thousands of years inuit for instance are gonna i presume would struggle to have sort of embrace a plant-based diet and we know that southern europeans are much more comfortable with it because it's been higher higher amounts of non-animal proteins in their diet for much longer
1: so where do you sit on that in terms of the health-based stuff yeah is it as robust as some people say well I I think there's two things and and I guess the first thing is to to tackle you know the question but then I think there's there's an extra tangent to it as well which I, I find interesting and so there's, there's these places called Blue Zones. Mm. And there's a guy, I think the author is called Dan Buettner. He talks about these Blue Zones. And so Blue Zones are areas of the world where people have abnormally high life expectancies, where the number of centenaries is, is significantly higher than, than the global average, or even the national average of, of, of those countries where they're found. And what they all have in common, these Blue Zones, I think there's five of them in total, is that they eat 95% plant-based. So there's the Seventh-day Adventists in California, um, Okinawans in off the coast of, of Japan, and, and several others as well, and, and what they share is this 95% plant-based thing. So I think when you look at when you look at stuff like that, it, it points very heavily in the direction of plant-based diet being healthier. Um, but know, they're vegetarian. Well, sometimes. I mean,
0: I would argue, I'd, I'd agree that we we know for sure vegetarianism is much healthier than an omnivore diet, but veganism. Is veganism healthier than vegetarian diet, I suppose, is the is the question I'm asking.
1: Well, I mean, in the blue zones, they're 95% plant-based, so they're still adhering mostly to a plant-based diet, mm-hmm. you know, almost entirely. Um, and actually, when you look at dairy and eggs, dairy is probably one of the least healthy foods you can consume. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because of the high rates of saturated fat and, and cholesterol, but also there's the hormonal aspect of dairy as well. So, you know, dairy consumption is potentially more unhealthy than some of the meats that we can consume.
0: Particularly older men, basically any guy over forty-five should not be touching animal protein. We kind yeah, of we yeah. kind of know this: yeah. stroke, coronary heart disease, yeah. kinds of cancer. Yeah, and I, and I feel like that's. I mean, that's that's potentially a good selling point. Like I said to my dad, he's like, oh, I'm feeling. This. I was like, Dad, honestly, the number one thing you can do is cut out butter and red meat. Yeah.
1: No, you're right. We shouldn't. I don't mean to undermine the health impacts of it, but you know, I come at this from a moral perspective and then mm. an environmental perspective, and and I say. You know, if we don't kick a dog or, or, you know, there's a dog in front of us, the reason for us not to kick that dog is because kicking the dog might hurt our foot. You know, the reason to not kick the dog is because kicking the dog is morally wrong. And so the reason to not eat meat isn't because meat can increase our risk of cancer and heart disease. It's because eating meat is morally wrong. The fact that it also increases our risk of heart disease and cancers and such is yet another reason to abstain from consuming it. But even if it didn't increase our risk, we should still abstain from it because of that moral reason.
0: Ed, can I ask you a personal question? Please. All right. So... I've been vegan before yeah. for about six months. What I can't do is, and I think this is, again, it's a uh, sort of ethnic background, sure. enzymes, yeah. God knows what, genetic inheritance. I can't eat chickpeas. Yeah. I can't eat legumes. I can't eat all these kinds of things that vegans have to eat. So for protein, I, I found that I had to eat eggs.
1: I mean, I mean am I let off? When and this you say this, can't, what do you mean by can't? Oh, gastrointestinal I, problems
0: ga- IBS like right. hard hardcore and so I suppose lots of people watching this who, who are trying veganism or have been in the past yeah. are there things they can do to mitigate that does it pass after a while because obviously you're immersed in this community better than anyone
1: Yeah. I mean, when someone first goes plant-based, you know, you're making a shift in your diet. And for some people that might include adding a lot more fiber into our diet. and fiber is so important and we should be, you know, a significant amount of fiber, but most of us don't. You know, in the US and UK, we have staggeringly high rates of, you know, fiber, you know, not deficiency, but we don't consume enough of it. So for a lot of people, when they go plant-based and they start consuming a lot of fiber, they're going to start to notice different gastrointestinal shifts, let's say. So I think that it can maybe concern people because they think there's something wrong. Like it a cleanse or something but ultimately i think it's for most people you just get through that and your just body just shifts and adjusts now there is some food after, after how long oh I, I guess it varies for different people um it really depends what you're coming from if you're coming from a diet of ultra processed meats and then you're going to a whole foods plant-based diet which is centered around you know legumes and whole grains and fruits mm. and vegetables you know, that's a big shift for your body to undergo so there might be a period of of, of settling into that um so I guess it's hard to put an exact time frame on it. you know some people will go plant based and they 'll feel great immediately they 'll sleep better they 'll have more energy their skin will clear up all of these different things. Some people go plant based and they won 't feel any difference they won 't feel any less tired or more tired they won 't feel any less full or more full it It really depends and I think the important thing when you when you go plant based is to make sure you 're consuming enough food you know eating enough calories because the problem I had when I first made the change is I started eating a lot of quinoa and a lot of kale, but I, I was using these foods as replacements for like cheese because I, I would come from being vegetarian. So I was eating a lot of halloumi. Mm-hmm. So I stopped eating halloumi and I replaced it with something that was less calorie dense mm-hmm. and I'd feel hungry. So I think just making sure you're eating enough calorie dense foods at the beginning is important. What uh,
0: kind of foods?
1: Yeah, like I guess like potatoes, whole grains, starches, those kinds of foods um, are, are definitely good places to start. Um, and then with with your, I suppose, the personal problem you had I guess it's just about process of trial and error you know maybe chickpeas didn't go down so well for you at the beginning so maybe swap to something else instead and you know, there, are, there are plenty of protein sources in fact all food has protein in it just obviously in different degrees and some are you know not very high protein levels of course but as long as you're consuming you know your calories for the day and you're eating a variety of foods even taking legumes out you should be able to get all the protein you need no problem it's just i guess a process of trial and error and see what works best for you
0: it sounds to me that you're saying actually it's better to for people to do this maybe gradually i mean like if they're sort of curious to just integrate more of this into their diet because like you say the stomach has to adjust and so on and so forth or or or, I mean, you're very laissez-faire, each to their own, but it does sound like a gradual approach is better. And you yourself were
1: a vegetarian before being a vegan. Would you sort of suggest that, or? It's a, it's a really good question. Um, it would be hypocritical of me to say that people should go from meat-eater to vegan overnight because as you say, quite rightly, that's not the transition that I made. But I always think, I always encourage people to just try it. You know, let's, let's say, you try, let's say you, you try going vegan um, from meat-eater to vegan or from vegetarian to vegan. Uh, you make that direct change. So overnight, you take all the animal products out of your, of your diet and it goes well amazing, you've done it, great. Let's say you do it and you slip up a couple of times or potentially you've eaten a few foods that you, you know don't settle so well. So, And then you kind of slip back into it. Well, at least, at least you tried. And so now you can take that gradual approach. I, I think the concern I always have with people taking it gradually is we can become complacent at some point you know, if we take, you know, months or so to make this transition, it's very easy to just kind of say, actually, I've done enough now, you know, I've, I've taken red meat out, I've done this, I've done that, that's the place to stop. Because there would, there will have been something that encouraged us to make that change at the beginning. Maybe it's watching Earthlings, maybe it's reading about the environmental damage, maybe it's reading about, you know, whatever it may be. And so you have that drive at the beginning, but after maybe four or five weeks, that time distance that you've now had from that moment where you had that you know, desire for change could maybe lull you into a sense of complacency. So Mm. if you do do it gradually, I always say a bit of accountability is important so that you are making that shift in the right direction and you don't stop and say, you know, I'm doing enough at this point. Mm. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? Yeah, I mean, most days for breakfast, I'll have oats. That's normally, uh, yeah, just some rolled oats, soy milk or oat milk, and then uh, flaxseed, some ground flaxseed, then some like blueberries or strawberries or banana um, that's normally what I have, yeah.
0: And what would you, soy milk or oat milk, which is your soy favourite? Soy
1: milk. If Why? I, nutritionally speaking, uh, it's kind of what we were speaking about before. It's a complete protein, so it's all the amino acids that we need and um, mm. the soy milk, good source of calcium and also comes fortified with things like B12, vitamin D. Um, and So, so I, I think it's just a, a, good, a good, healthy food source. Some of the things said about
0: soy yeah. as a protein, I mean, that's pseudoscientific, but... It is, but
1: can you explain why yeah i mean there was a study that was released i can't remember when it was but it it was to do with fertility um and people became obsessed with the idea that consuming soy lowered your fertility and then coupled with that there was a story of a man who consumed excessive amounts of soy and then grew man boobs and so then the story became that consuming soy uh, feminizes men because it elevates estrogen yeah so exactly right so um Plant foods, some contain something called phytoestrogen or phytoestrogen, which is a plant hormone. Um, and so people have misguidedly believed that that is the same as consuming like a, a million, you know, an animal-based estrogen or estrogen. Um, but of course that's not the case. And actually what studies have shown that is that consumption of soy reduces the risk of things like breast cancer and prostate cancer when compared to, to dairy consumption. So yeah, it is, it is science, but it's, it's also very prevalent as well, unfortunately.
0: What, why do you think that is? Like, especially amongst young men, mm. they're sort of, they love the idea of eating, you know, raw, something when I was younger, you'd have guys going in the gym and it was about who could eat more meat yeah. and it was seen as effeminate to not eat meat. Yeah. Have things changed?
1: A little bit, but that, that uh, myth still prevails quite heavily. Uh, I get called a soy boy. You know that's like a derogatory term that vegan men are uh, referred to as, you know, soy boy, because it's that idea of feminization. You know, like you're losing your masculinity by by no longer consuming animals. And I think it's it's very interesting, and I, and I talk a little bit about this in the book as well, because it's one of those fascinating kind of social things. And I think there's a couple of reasons why we do perceive meat to be manly, and I think there's kind of an ancestral reasoning for that. Um, when you look at early kind of hunter gatherer tribes, of course, the genders the gender split tended to be that men would hunt, women would would gather and look after the children and, and look after the communities. And so that idea of men hunting and it was kind of like a, a very masculine trope from, from back then. So I think that we've kind of carried the idea of men being hunters into a current context you know, of, of current society. And we've kind of misguidedly believed that the masculine aspect of the hunting was the consumption of the animals, like the, the lack of concern for the killing of animals. That was what defined men back then. But ultimately, the hunting of animals was more about provision, you know, providing for communities. You know, men hunted because it was instrumental to the survival of their families and their, and their communities. So actually, the act of hunting was less about the killing of the animal and more about that, that notion of provision. So I think that meat and masculinity thing can stem a lot from that but also has become misguided. But I also think as well that this reinforcing of this concept of red meat in particular being masculine comes from advertising um, you know fast food advertising in particular but also just I suppose this kind of sexualization of meat that can occur in, in advertising you know burger can have adverts like eat like a man um, and there there is often a connotation particularly of American fast food chains and you know women consuming these burgers and it being a sexual object so it's very fascinating how these things kind of interplay with one another and it's led to this idea that yeah by giving up eating animals, you are somehow losing part of your masculinity. I think it comes down to, as well, that notion of empathy. You know, I think compassion, empathy, can sometimes be seen as weak traits. You know, a strong person uh, is someone who cares about themselves, who you know defends themselves as a sovereign individual. And compassion, empathy, can sometimes get in the way of that kind of pursuit of self. You know, gratification, if you like.
0: I love how you sort of, you stick to it quite analytically. But for me, it's just kind of pathetic. A (laughs) a grown male in the 21st century in Europe would look at like chicken factory farming with steroids and antibiotics, highly mechanized, and think it has anything to do with somebody 20,000 years ago taking down a woolly mammoth. Yes, yes. You know, it's like comparing like a wolf to like a a shih tzu. Like they're they're totally different beasts. Certainly so. I mean, it is. How do you stay so cool and collected and calm Mm. and... uh, Because for me, it's just that this this is just so stupid.
1: But you you don't talk in those terms. I think it's important to try and rationalise why people have got to these beliefs. You know, I think a a lot of the reasoning that we have for why we do what we do to animals is inherently so idiotic and ignorant. That's just a fact. But I don't think it's often helpful just to label it in such a way. I think sometimes it is. But I think often it's important to understand the mechanisms behind what drives people's behaviour. Because if we can't understand why someone thinks that way, then I think it's hard to try and address, you know, the the solution to that way of thinking. You know, and for a man who goes to the gym, whose friends are also gym goers, there's this extra peer pressure that comes with that. You know, they're probably trying to outcompete each other in the gym, so they probably want to outcompete each other in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there have been studies that have shown that that men will often revert to eating red meat when their masculinity is threatened, or they will look to their peers for for social recognition. And that men who maybe want to eat less meat or who want to eat a plant-based option will not do so because they're fearful of how that will play out with their friendship groups. And so that again speaks to a lot of fragility. And that's what's really ironic about the meat and masculinity argument is that the idea that eating meat is masculine comes from a very insecure and fragile place. You know, if you're comfortable with your masculinity and you don't have anything to prove to anyone, then why do you need to do something to prove that you're a man? You know, why do you need to show that to others? And a fascinating comparison I always think is that there was a study done that looked at um, beliefs around someone's social status. So they looked at me and how that influences people's perceptions about how they fit into kind of social hierarchies. And they took people who were kind of very affluent and then all the way down to not so affluent. And they saw a direct correlation between the more affluent you are, the more likely you are to not view meat as being a symbol of affluence and power. Mm. But the lower you are, the more you see meat as being a symbol of power. And the idea behind that was that people who have strong social status and strong um, kind of standings within social hierarchies are less likely to look for external sources of power. Of perceived power. But those who feel like maybe society has been cruel to them or society isn't respecting them or who don't have the options and capacities to live in the way Mm. that they see others living will see meat as being a symbol of power because they think by consuming that they're creating some sort of domination or hierarchical structure within their own life mm. that they have control over so in effect meat was seen as a substitute for a perceived lack of power and status and i think the same is true of masculinity i think that if you think that meat gives you masculine um, traits that comes from the fact that you perceive yourself to have a lack of that very thing so mm. you're, you're viewing meat as being a substitute for something you think you're lacking so i think there's an inherent, inherent paradox in people who think red meat makes you manly because it it suggests they think they're lacking something they need to substitute from red meat instead
0: i suppose there is some truth content though to the idea that a strong virile male who's contributing to you know his group would be able to take on apex predators which is hugely dangerous could kill you you know you're taking on large animals to, to get food for other people there is some truth content to that being not masculine but powerful sure. powerful yeah and but the idea that you know you're going to Im- imitate that's eating a kfc yeah or a, <laughs> yes, a, bi- exactly, a blt yeah. sandwich yeah. i mean i, I you know we, we we were just saying a moment ago you, you're dealing with it through logic and reasoning but i think you know mockery i think as well you know it's, it, it's so it's it's so pathetic and i think it yeah. does speak to something really strong about like you say contemporary masculinity what does it say about contemporary masculinity mm. when people are looking at a dead animal as a source of their own identity. It's kind yeah. of strange. It is. Whereas at least like, axial religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, at least they're saying, well, look, you sacrifice the thing because it, it's, it's an emissary. It's a conduit for God. You can mm-hmm. have a conversation with a higher being. It's quite a powerful idea. Sure. Do you, do you sort of think when you look at our relationship to animals, do you think it, it crystallizes and says some quite powerful things about our culture more generally about how, how, how strange our culture is?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the fact is, humans evolved a lot quicker than we were able to keep up with. You know, technologically, we became very advanced very quickly. Um, you know, intellectually, we you know made huge strides in a very short period of time. But I think emotionally and cognitively, you know, rationally speaking, I don't think we've caught up to where we have technologically speaking. And so, we're kind of in this weird you know, transient periods where we have these very kind of primal, very outdated kind of emotional reactions and triggers to things without necessarily having the logical reasoning to back them up. So I think that culturally, what culture shows us is how out of step we are where we should be. Now, the fact that we even have animal sacrifices anymore, you know, it just seems so crazy to me that we're living in this highly developed world with all of this information and all of this awareness about so many complex things, and yet we're still sacrificing animals to to a deity. And, you know, not to devalue people's belief in a deity, which is is, is more than invalid and justified and not a problem, but the fact that we still think that violence is a way to to interact with such a, a deity, I think, is is a very outdated notion. So... Culture speaks volumes about where we are socially speaking. And I think that we have obviously huge strides still to make because we haven't even fixed our relationship with one another yet, mm-hmm. you know? And we still haven't worked out how not to bomb each other. You know, it, it's, it's so crazy that we have all of this intelligence. And for a lot of it, what we do is we utilize that intelligence to maximize the suffering we cause, whether it's in, in wars or indeed with things like factory farming, we still haven't quite learned how to use the intelligence that comes with emotional, I suppose, Sensitivity, mm.
0: but I do wonder if because what you're saying there is a kind of like a trajectory. I do wonder if you know, like I said earlier, we've been around for a couple hundred thousand years. We've had agriculture for twelve thousand years. We had factory farming for a hundred hundred years. I feel like probably for the vast majority of human history, we treated other animals far better than we do now, certainly before agriculture. So if you look at animist beliefs and faith, compared to axial religions which come out of agriculture, right? So uh, 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 God is somebody who looks after his flock. The Lord is a shepherd. These are metaphors which directly correlate to agricultural societies because that's where they come from. I mean... Maybe we've never treated animals worse. You're saying oh, it's about we, we emotionally we've not caught up with where we are. Maybe we've actually fallen from a much more noble place in terms of how we interact with nature. Or do you buy that or am I being a little bit too romantic?
1: Yes and no. I think what you said is is exceptionally profound because you hit on a really important point, which is that there's this ironic situation now where, you know, I think if you asked the everyday person at least compared to 100 years ago, especially, we would probably say that animals deserve more and more consideration than we ever have. Mm. And yet the suffering that we cause to animals has never been higher than it is right now. And it's growing. You know, when you look globally, the industrialization of animal agriculture is growing. The numbers of animals being farmed and killed is growing globally. So we have more, or we perceive animals to deserve more consideration than we ever have yet the suffering we cause is higher than it's ever been. There's a, a really inherent paradox. And so I think you're right. Agriculture was a huge stepping stone in this in this problem. You know, before when we hunted, as you say, there was, at least in certain cultures around the world, there was a, a significantly higher amount of respect that, that was part of that. And I think that respect came out of the notion that this was a necessity. Mm. You know, when we used to hunt, we had to, to survive. And so I think we had an, an inherent amount of respect to animals because... To hunt an animal, especially back then before we had crossbows and, you know, night vision goggles and, cam- you know, we could hide out in woods for hours with a, with a rifle. Hunting wasn't this kind of, this thing that was just a certainty. When you went out to hunt, there was no telling whether you were going to come back with, with a kill because there were these checks and balances in nature which gave prey a chance against predators. So I think back then you had respect for animals because this wasn't this, wasn't this one-sided situation. You had to respect an animal because you have to understand how they operate, how they act if you're going to have a chance of catching them and killing them. So I think that created an inherent respect for of a life that probably um, we lost with agriculture because agriculture made us realize that animals can be subjugated beings that we don't need to treat with respect because they can't get away from us. We can castrate them, we can tie them up, we can chain them up, we can do awful things to them. We They don't deserve our respect anymore because they're so weak and in front of us. So I think we have lost that respect for animals that probably existed back in the day when we were more fairly competitive with them mm. but we've never treated them well you know we've never considered their best interests and that was because we weren't able to because we hunted out necessity but now we don't have to hunt we don't have to farm and so now we can think about their best interests in a very unique way which opens mm. the door for respect in a way that we've never had the luxury of being able to have before i think mm.
0: uh, let's talk about um carcinogens and meat processed meat in
1: particular do
0: you think that processed meat should be labeled as dangerous to health like we have with smoking
1: i mean it seems only right doesn't it why why would we have it for smoking and not with bacon and and sausages you know if if the argument is that it's important that consumers are aware that this is going to cause cancer and this is what this could kill them then there should be some consistency with that so yeah definitely and i think part of the problem is when it comes to you know health studies people are very easy you know very quick to disregard that actually with the with the meat or processed meat and cancer and that happened with Philip Schofield, Um, there was this meat funded study that came out, absolute pseudoscience funded by the Texas Beef Checkoff, you know, involved with the the Cattleman Association in the US. And it basically tried to make the claim that actually the WHO got it wrong, that processed meat doesn't cause cancer and heart disease. So this meat funded study, Philip Schofield on this morning, one of the most watched daytime programs in the UK, of course, said, you know, bacon is back on the menu because of this meat industry funded pseudoscientific study. And he, and he literally said to his audience, oh, when you, when you see these studies that come out saying, you know this causes that and this causes that, ignore them because next week they'll tell you something different that is so irresponsible and, and, irresponsible and dangerous. Mm. And I think that the problem that people have is we don't look at bodies of work you know, when when we look at health literature and health studies, it's really important that we just don't look at isolated studies, we look at meta-analyses, you know, review studies and, and full bodies of work, because that's where we can see where the real correlations lie. And when we look at bodies of work, we can see clear correlations between meat and, and cancer, for example. You know, the WHO study that's referenced, the one that created processed meat as a class one carcinogen, is a review study of over 800 separate different studies. You know, it's such a huge body of work. But people don't, don't know that. So they, they read about it in the paper. They think that oh, there's been this one study. I'm just going to ignore that because I'll be told something different next week. So people need to have this information reinforced to them. And we know scientifically and, and the medical community is fully aware that processed meat increases your risk. of of certain forms of cancer consumers need to be made aware of that as well and it's a travesty that there are people in hospitals right now dying from preventable diseases and if they had probably abstained from eating processed meat many of these people might not even be there to begin with could be with their loved ones their friends family members Mm. and yet because of this preventable disease that people haven't been given a fair warning about they're now suffering in a hospital and their immediate family suffers alongside them so absolutely as a bare minimum morally should it be
0: taxed more because you obviously these are called Pigouvian taxes by economists. Yeah, they change behaviour, and people say they're they're unfair because they hit working people more because it's not indexed onto income. But we know they work. People yeah. smoke a lot less than they used to. They drink a lot less than they used to. We can talk about the sort of social justice merits, but they're effective at doing that. Yeah, should that be applied to things like processed meat?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think more importantly, we need to remove subsidies from, from the from the equation. So subsidies are, of course, uh, funds taken from the taxpayer that are then given to industries to bring down the costs of production to maximize the efficiency. And subsidies in agriculture were incredibly important in the early 20th century. When we got out of the Second World War, countries, of course, started to have a focus on increasing the self-sufficiency of their agricultural systems because of food scarcities and, and rationing. And so governments, including the UK, created these subsidy schemes to help farmers produce more food and increase sufficiency. So they were introduced for a very noble and good reason, and they worked very effectively. But the problem is what we have now is a system where billions of pounds of UK taxpayer money every single year is being given to industries like the pig industry, or the chicken industry, or the beef industry, or the lamb industry. And so we are driving down the production costs of these foods, making them exceptionally cheap, and also then having to pay for the environmental cleanup costs, and the healthcare costs. According to, to DEFRA, which is the, the Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs, which is the UK government department, according to DEFRA, 90% of the annual profits for grazing animal farmers, so that's you know, cattle farmers and sheep farmers, comes from taxpayer subsidies. So this isn't a profitable industry. It, it only works because of us, the taxpayer. Now compare that to fruit farmers, for example, where only 10% of their annual profits comes from subsidies. So a much more financially viable industry. So we have a situation where we're paying the profits for these farmers to make their industry even remotely workable. And then we also pay the environmental cleanup costs. You know, when all the the manure runs off into the rivers, when the, the agricultural runoff from the fertilizer use runs off into the rivers and pollutes our rivers and creates dead zones and algae blooms, we, the taxpayer, pay those cleanup costs. And then when people are put into hospitals with colon cancer or heart disease, we, the taxpayer, pay for those healthcare costs. And I'm a huge fan of the NHS and I want free healthcare for people. So that's not the problem. But the problem is our money as taxpayers has been used very inefficiently. So let's take the subsidies out of these damaging industries, you know, fossil fuels as well. Let's take it out of these damaging industries and let's use taxpayers' funds for the good of the taxpayer. You know, a, a prosperous food system, a system which incentivizes technological advancements, things like vertical farming or cellular agriculture, you know, lab-grown as it's kind of informally called, or also things like plant-based agriculture. Let's make healthy plant-based foods like berries and, and vegetables and grains, let's make them cheap, as cheap as we possibly can so that people have access to an abundant of healthy food, which is also better for the environment. So yeah, take out the subsidies that will naturally bring up the cost. And then if there are still extra costs, you know, related to healthcare and the environment and such, then yes, let's tax it so that the price we pay for these products is truly representative of the costs that they pay. They they should be.
0: I mean, I I'm 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 kind of I'm anxious about putting taxes on food. I think it's a very we don't put VAT on food for a good reason, right? Because it's a a necessity. You can't you can't live without it. But I think the argument to put VAT at least on processed foods is super strong, and I think labelling it as well should be pretty obvious. Even again, just from a health perspective, if you're a guy who's 55, you've got an increased you know chance of getting cancer. You should probably know that having a chicken sandwich is going to be better than having a sandwich with prosciutto or salami even even if you don't care about animal rights or whatever, this seems like quite smart public policy. Mm. But I think you're right to say, this channels into such deep anxieties about meat, identity, the status quo. Yeah. Very hard to do. I guess one, one thing you could do is, should we be looking at labeling food or, as we already do with its kind of nutritional content yeah. and talk about its carbon footprint?
1: 100%. I think that we should have climate labeling. And as you, exactly as you say, you know, we have a breakdown of, you know, this is a red light for fat, this is an amber light for, for salt content, mm. which I think is a great thing that we introduced. We should definitely have that for, for climate scores, land use, um, you know, carbon emissions, stuff like that is really important for people to see. And it'll be very powerful if you go into a supermarket and you see you know, a piece of steak and it just has the worst rating you know, from a climate perspective. And then also of course has, you know, high saturated fat and high cholesterol. And then on top of that, it's from a dead animal. You know, all of these things start to build up yeah. and actually create a very powerful you know, uh, an argument in the mind of the consumer because they're faced with it right there in front of them. You know, we have to get through this disassociation that people have with food because it's so easy to be unconscious and go into a supermarket or wherever it is and buy something. It's so easy to do that. What we need to do is be more conscious in our consuming and say, actually, does this align with what I want the future of the planet to look like? Mm. Does it align with my moral code about how we should treat animals? And you know, does it align with how I want my personal health journey to, mm. to, to unfold as life goes on? And if it doesn't align with all those things, well, actually maybe this food source over here, which is better in every single way is, is more in alignment with what I want. Yeah, I think climate labeling is, is definitely one aspect of that. Ed, thanks for joining us here at Navarra Media. Yeah, it's been a delight. Thank you for having me. Um,
0: Ed has this great new book, which came out in January. Yep. Uh, with Penguin Vermilion, This is vegan propaganda. Honestly, it's one of the best books I've run years. Really? I think there's something in it for everyone, but it is hugely, hugely informative. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me again. We look forward to seeing you grow even further. Thank you. Likewise.
1: Broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to slash support.